From the third column, more than three quarters down, we read, quote, Looking over a late number of the New York Daily Times, we discover an array of quote-unquote news from Arizona, a portion of which we quote, confident that it will be interesting to people hereabouts since the intelligence is eminently new and no less wonderful, end quote. Then, after quoting a paragraph about 600 men working hard in gold mines along the Gila River, the piece suddenly jumps to commentary saying, quote, the above paragraph is a tissue of humbuggery. End quote. Just one column over, and we can read all about late papers from the states. These announce the death of the former governor of Vermont. Another tells us that a General Miramon has assumed the presidency of the Republic of Mexico, making him a, quote, addition to the list of those who have reached this summit of ambition in early life, end quote. My favorite is the tidbit about an enterprising showman who is exhibiting a company of trained fleas in cities along the Atlantic coast, and apparently this minuscule troop was playing to packed houses. After this break into the fanciful, it dives into the international gossip that newly assumptive General Miramon has proposed selling the states of Sonora and Chihuahua for a rumored $16 million. If we look around more at the bottom of the second column, we read about how Mr. Ten Broick won more than $15,000 on the English turf last season. And the rest of the page is consumed with the condition of Mexico and Mexican politics, and a half-news-slash-half-commentary on wagon roads being built, including one being surveyed by a Lieutenant Beale. If you haven't guessed by now, this smattering of news and editorializing came courtesy of a newspaper page. But not just any newspaper page, but the very first ever printed in Arizona. What this page doesn't tell you, however, is that it would set the tone for journalism in the territory for the next 30-plus years. From this point on, newspapers would quickly proliferate and soon be practically throwing around politics, notices, advertisements, editorials, forceful personalities, and maybe just a little bit of actual news. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 150, Arizona's Fourth Estate. Welcome back, everyone. Before we dive into today's topic, I just want to call your attention to the episode number you heard just a few seconds ago. We've reached one of those milestones that humans attach to nice round numbers, which is something I just have to recognize. I'm frankly not sure what's more unbelievable, that I managed to somehow put out 150 episodes just about Arizona history, or that after 150 episodes, we still have more than a century to go before we're done. Still, it's been a thrilling three and a half years, and I hope you all have enjoyed the ride as much as I have. Of course, I wouldn't be here without all of you listeners out there who tune in every week to hear the next installment of my historical rambling. And then there are those of you who have taken things a step further and have actually donated money to the show, some very recently, which is still blowing my mind a bit. 
So before we go one step further, I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for reaching out to me on social media or via email, and thank you for making talking about the history of Arizona on the internet so darn gratifying. It wouldn't be the same without you. And to celebrate reaching such a milestone, I wanted to dive into something that is a little self-indulgent, but hopefully interesting. During my final year of college, I took a course on Arizona history because I needed another elective and figured it would be an easy A. As part of that class, I wrote a whole paper about the history of the main newspapers in the Salt River Valley, and I discovered this endlessly fascinating rabbit hole of the acrimonious relationship between them. Today, and next week, I want to bring something like that to you, but on a bigger scale. However, I want to go beyond just talking about when various papers were founded and important events they covered. Don't get me wrong, we are definitely going to do that in an abbreviated form to start with. But I'm also going to take you behind the scenes a little bit to explore the disorganized, catch-as-catch-can, always-on-the-brink-of-bankruptcy industry that was journalism during Arizona's territorial period. And me being me, I can't let you go without thoroughly covering the myriad of colorful, forceful, and irascible men who decided that they were going to run a newspaper, and get into fights with the colorful, forceful, and irascible men who ran the territory's other newspapers. Just as an editorial aside, I'm going to give you the same warning I gave my college professor. Frontier editors were always tinkering with the names and formats of their papers, making it nearly impossible to keep the actual name of a newspaper in any given year straight. That's why, with some exceptions, I won't generally note if the paper is the weekly X or the daily Y and sometimes just refer to it by its most convenient name. Some of these papers and their editors have shown up in our story before as supporting characters, Journalism really is the first draft of history, and I've always been grateful to be able to quote newspapers as a primary source whenever it was possible. And being a recovering journalist myself, I couldn't help then, and definitely can't help now, slipping them into the narrative wherever I can. Okay, the very first paper to print in Arizona was the Weekly Arizonian, which produced its first four-page issue on March 3rd, 1859. The articles I quoted at the very beginning of the episode were lifted from the front page of that original paper. We covered most of the early history of the Arizonian back in episodes 31 and 32. The paper was set up by Charles Poston's mining company, thanks to backing from Poston himself and brothers William and Thomas Wrightson. It was printed on a Washington press that had been brought in from Cincinnati by way of Guaymas, Mexico, and as we discussed in episode 32, it ran for 20 issues before a duel and a change of owners, and it moved to Tucson. Here, under the control of staunchly Democratic owners, including our old acquaintances Sylvester Mowry and Granville Aury, it also failed to flourish, but mostly because the Civil War broke out the next year. Aury put the press into mothballs before he rode out to find he had been beaten to the punch to be the Confederate delegate to Congress, and then go on to fight in the Civil War. See episode 37 if you want a more fleshed out version of that story. The army ended up seizing the Washington press when Carleton's column took Tucson 
and used it to print military orders. But surprisingly, this was not the end of the Arizonian, or even the Washington Press. The paper would be revived in 1867, struggle to survive, and be taken over in 1869 by an editor who would drop that annoyingly errant I to make it just the Arizonan. But apparently that wasn't enough, because that paper folded just two years after that in 1871. Now, the original two-back Arizonian had been nonpartisan, seeing as there were really no parties, just the mining company. Once bought by Maori and Auri, it became a Democratic paper, but switched to being a Republican paper when it was revived in 1867. When the new editor took over in 1869, it continued to be an unabashedly Republican paper, up until the owner decided to switch parties, at which point he ran afoul of Richard C. McCormick, one-time governor and now territorial delegate to Congress. McCormick was the actual owner of the swanky new press the Arizonan had brought in to replace the original Washington press, so he simply went in and repoed the machine. The editor had to round up 12 strong men to again set up the Washington press, which had been sitting on its side in the back of the shop. And he would keep right on printing until he finally decamped for California in 1871. The name Arizonian, with that dreaded I, pops up a couple other times, with someone trying to revive a moribund paper in Prescott using that name, which failed, and then an actual paper being printed in the year 1879, but no further. The old Washington press itself would be passed around and used to print other papers in both Tucson and Tombstone, including the Tucson Citizen, the Tucson Star, the Spanish-language Las Dos Repúblicas, and the Tombstone Nugget. Eventually, it was donated to the Arizona Pioneers Historical Society in 1913. And I know I've referenced this before, but I can't seem to find where in the past 150 episodes. But this press eventually made its way to Tubac Presidio State Historic Park, where you can still see it today. They even occasionally operated to produce replicas of the original edition of the Weekly Arizonian for two groups and field trips. I've thrown a not very good image of the Washington Press in the museum up on the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com. Okay, as always, that took a little bit longer to explain than I had originally planned. But after the weekly Arizonian premiered, there is a slight disagreement among my two primary sources about what the second newspaper to pop into existence was. Early state historian James H. McClintock, who was a newspaper man himself, and yes, I know I promised you an episode talking more about him, I'm, I'm working on it, says that a short-lived newspaper being called the Mojave Dog Star was printed in October 1859 near Fort Mojave. However, he goes on to say that, quote, The paper was issued more for pastime than otherwise, its ostensible object being to correct the free love tendencies of the Mojave Indians, end quote. Which, if true, is hilarious. However, this newspaper, if you can even call it that, is not mentioned at all by author William H. Lyon in his 1994 book on Arizona territorial journalism, Those Old Yellow Dog Days. 
and I will admit that I'm leaning heavy on Lion, as for some reason, not as many books have been written about historic newspapers as, say, the Pleasant Valley War or the shootout at the Old K Corral. Go figure. Lion, like many others, gives the credit of second newspaper to one we've covered before, the Prescott Miner. We talked briefly about the foundation of the Prescott Miner in episode 48, but the original edition in 1864 had to be printed at nearby Fort Whipple because, well, there was no Prescott just yet. The miner would move to its new digs shortly thereafter when its owner, again Richard C. McCormick, bought the first lot in the recently established territorial capital. He meant the paper to be the official mouthpiece of the new territorial administration, which is just about as much fun as it sounds. When the miner really becomes fun, however, is in 1867 when it fell into the hands of an owner-slash-editor by the name of John Marion. Marion was one of those editors that either struck awe or fear in people. Acerbic, caustic, humorous, unapologetically democratic, openly irreligious, frequently drunk, definitely racist, but undeniably talented, Marion would use the miner as a vehicle to basically bash people over the head with words. And there's no one he liked to bash more than the man he had bought the paper from, McCormick. Because the capital had moved to Tucson, Marion would continually skewer the sitting governor, again, McCormick, over and over for his perceived role in the corrupt deal that had taken that prize from Prescott. Really, it got to the point that if McCormick sneezed, Marion would write an editorial deriding him for not coughing instead. We'll have much more to say about Marion later on. Although he would sell the miner in 1877, he could not stop himself from raising his voice, running through four other papers before his death in 1891, including the short-lived Prescott Arizonian that I mentioned earlier. By the by, the man he sold the miner to, and who swung the paper back to Republicanism, was Charles Beach. I fell down a fun rabbit hole with Charles Beach back in episode 91, so go back and listen to that episode for some journalistic and courtroom antics. From Prescott, I want to turn south back to Tucson, where we have to deal with another major contender and another familiar name for more reasons than one. Much like the miner in Prescott, the Tucson Weekly Citizen was the brainchild of Richard C. McCormick, who needed another mouthpiece for his Republican administration after it had moved down to Tucson. So he bought the press from a paper that had just gone belly up in Prescott, and in 1870, he turned the operations over to editor John Wasson. That name should sound familiar to you, as we mentioned him just last week. He was the first U.S. Surveyor General for the Arizona Territory, which is why I name-checked him while talking about land grants. And so, the job of editing The Citizen was always kind of a side hustle for him. Under Wasson, The Citizen really was the voice of the McCormick administration, and the so-called federal ring of officials who made their living from being appointed to territorial offices. We mentioned Wasson off and on starting in episode 69 for his editorials that helped incite the Camp Grant Massacre and brutally attacked Tom Jefford's tenure as the Indian agent on the Chiricahua Reservation. 
Eventually, Watson would sell The Citizen in 1877 to another very familiar face, John Clum, who was just then retiring from being the Indian agent at San Carlos after angrily taking his ball and stomping away when he didn't get his way. Clum would operate The Citizen before briefly moving it to Florence, but eventually he left to head down to open his own paper and tombstone, the Epitaph. The Citizen would survive well into the modern era, and before it shuttered in 2009, it was the oldest still printing paper in the entire state. If we head down to Yuma, the community's newspaper was the Yuma Free Press, founded by two rather milquetoast editors in 1871 and quickly renamed the Yuma Sentinel a year later. In 1873, a man named William J. Berry took over and ran the paper for the next four years. Much like Marion, with whom he had a long, ongoing feud, Berry was known to drink to excess, but he seemed to run a newspaper as well as anyone in the territory could. The same year that Berry gave up editing The Sentinel in Yuma, 1877, was something of one of those neat dividing lines in history that we sometimes like to draw. By that year, the Tubac and Tucson versions of the Arizonian and the short-lived paper from La Paz called the Gazette had folded. That last paper had moved to Prescott after the gold boom town had collapsed, but it soon just faded into obscurity despite a spirited push in favor of Charles Poston as congressional delegate. The territory's remaining three papers were limping along, and this is when Barry at the Yuma Sentinel Marion at the Prescott Minor, and Wasson at the Tucson Citizen all decided to move on to greener pastures. But after this time, we see something of an explosion, as by 1880 there would be 13 papers operating in different parts of Arizona, so that's 10 new papers in just three years. With the expanding roster of newspapers, we do have to pause here and highlight a few of the heavyweights. First, I want to call attention to the formation of the Salt River, later Phoenix, Herald in 1878. This was the first newspaper to serve the growing community that was sprouting up along the banks of the Salt River and Swilling's Ditch. The paper itself was set up by Territorial Secretary John J. Gosper, who was the secretary under the perennially absent John C. Fremont. So basically, Gosper was the governor. In fact, Charles Beach, the Republican who now oversaw the Prescott Minor and was bosom buddies with Fremont and Gosper, for the moment, helped get this enterprise off the ground, including by printing the first edition of the Herald in the offices of the Minor. But the real thing to note about the founding of the Herald is the hiring of Charles E. McClintock to serve as its first editor. Charles himself would die in 1881, but what's really important is he decided to have his brother, James H. McClintock, come and work for him. Seriously, I'm going to explore the life of James McClintock in the near future. Before he died, though, Charles would see the rise of the Herald's main rival, the Phoenix Gazette. Founded in 1880 as a Democratic alternative to the Republican Herald, it also was overseen by two brothers, Charles and Homer McNeil. It would also briefly include none other than Bucky O'Neill before the McNeil brothers bought out his interest in the paper. 
McClintock spent some time eulogizing a short-lived publication called The Weekly Expositor, which had been brought up from Yuma. This was apparently run by a gentleman named Judge James A. Riley, whom the historian calls an, quote, early-day iconoclast, end quote. Truth be told, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but McClintock says he, quote, printed his thoughts too freely and thus lost the Democratic County printing, end quote. After that, Riley had to move on, and the weekly paper, which managed to print daily for a short time, shriveled up. The true monster that came onto the scene late in the game, namely 1890, was the Arizona Republican. I touched on this briefly in episode 132, in that it was set up by Governor Lewis Wolfley so that he could have a newspaper that supported his brand of republicanism. And though the paper itself was a cheap political ploy, it came to compete. McClintock says that it was a seven-day daily, something almost unheard of among the other frontier papers where one guy was basically doing everything. The first year of production was said to cost $25,000, which is an astronomical sum once you factor in inflation. But the paper boasted the best possible press of its time, a full stable of reporters, another rarity, and the full Associated Press service, meaning that it could run international and national news. The first editor, Charles Ziegenfuss, which is a fun name to say, was also a longtime newspaper man of some renown, so he brought with him that clout. However, the paper's major failing is that it was simply a mouthpiece, or organ as they said in those days, for Wolfley. Most of its shareholders who contributed that $25,000 to run the thing were territorial officials, each of whom were compelled to contribute every month to the paper's operation. And once again from episode 132, the governor would run into hot water by doing things like requiring some territorial employees to take a subscription out just to support Wolfley. It's honestly surprising to me that at the end of the day, it's the Republican, now the Republic, that has survived up until the modern day, as opposed to the Herald or the Gazette. But history's funny that way. And if we hop down to Tucson briefly, we have to talk about the big paper there, the Tucson Star. Formed as the Bulletin Star in 1877, this paper was a true heavyweight in democratic politics for years, mainly due to the decades-long tenure of its owner and operator, Lewis C. Hughes. Now, we dealt with Hughes in episode 133 when he becomes territorial governor. However, long before that, he was known as a forceful voice in politics thanks to his position at the Star. In fact, the unflattering nickname of Pinhead Hughes, which we use as the title for episode 133, actually came from his editorial enemies mocking his appearance. Under Hughes, the Star really did become a leading paper in Arizona. He was the first to have installed a power press, the first to run a continuously daily paper, and he became the first president of the Arizona Press Association. We'll have much more to say about Hughes later on, but he really does come off as the elder statesman of sorts among his colleagues. While unwavering in his political ideals, he seemed less inclined to vitriolic tantrums like some of his peers, and he was, definitely unlike Marion and Barry, 
a force for social changes and high public morals. That doesn't mean he didn't get down in the mud with the rest of them upon occasion, but he was more likely to scold people than eviscerate them in print. To round out our necessarily brief sketch, I suppose we should hop over to Tombstone to briefly cover its newspapers. I mentioned the two I want to touch on now during our run of episodes on the OK Corral. The first was the Tombstone Nugget, set up in 1879 by A.E. Fay and Carlos Tully, which even used, as mentioned earlier, the original Washington Press that had printed the Tubac Arizonian. Less than a year later, however, its main rival would pop up when none other than John Clum came to town and on May 1st, 1880, published the first edition of the Tombstone Epitaph. There are a variety of explanations for what is a pretty hilarious and witty name. One is that it was a suggestion that Clum received from a prominent individual while dining at a prominent venue. Another is that Clum came up with the name himself, quipping that every tombstone needed an epitaph. And the third, as reported by McClintock, is that Clum solicited suggestions for names while on a stagecoach ride. It so happened that one of his fellow passengers was none other than Ed Shefflin, who remarked that he had named the area Tombstone, and that Clum should have no problem in furnishing the epitaph. Like any two papers espousing two different ideologies in a small but growing town, the Nugget and the Epitaph went several rounds together. This was especially true over the OK Corral affair, with the Democratic Nugget taking the side of the Clantons and the Cowboys, while Clum fell in with the solidly Republican White Earp. However, the funniest incident with the two papers was actually after Clum and the editor of the Nugget had gone on to other endeavors. That's because the two new rival editors who came in would actually challenge each other to a duel, something that I'm going to cover more in detail next week. But before I leave off, I should note that the Tombstone Epitaph continues to be printed to this day, and was until very recently overseen by the University of Arizona Journalism Department as a local paper in Tombstone. Today, you can still subscribe to the Epitaph, and unless I'm much mistaken, you'll receive reprints of past editions that highlight some of the best stories to come out of the Old West. I would be remiss if I didn't give at least lip service to the fact that American settlers are not the only ones in the territory. And the editors, always with one eye on their bottom line, could not afford to alienate the territory's very large Hispanic population. Even the original Tubac Arizonian would print columns in Spanish for its Mexican readers from time to time, something that the Tucson version would continue. The Tucson Arizonian would also print a Spanish version of the Howl Code, the territory's first set of laws, called the Compendio. We shouldn't be too surprised that the Prescott Minor, overseen by the very racist, even for his time, John Marion, made the excuse that the haphazard assortment of type it had gathered from shops in New Mexico would not allow it to print in Spanish. And then the paper gave the reasoning that most of Prescott's Spanish-speaking population was illiterate anyway. So, oh boy. Down in Tucson, where arguably the biggest Spanish-speaking population was in all of Arizona, papers jumped on trying to capitalize on this market. Carlos Tully, who had ties to the extremely influential Tully and Atroya Freighting Company, founded the paper Las Dos Repúblicas, like I said before, using that original Washington Press. 
Tolley was a close ally of Lewis Hughes, and their two papers shared the same hand press. Tolley would actually go on to edit a number of Spanish papers called La Colonia Mexicana, La Alianza, La Voz de Tucson, and La Luz. He also apparently took over a paper called La Sonora, a bilingual paper that had been started in 1879 by a woman named Josefina Lindley de Cordella. And I have to say, I find it very interesting that Arizona's first woman editor was Hispanic and running a bilingual paper. Determined not to lose out on this market, the Tucson citizen, the star's biggest rival, established the newspaper El Fronterizo. And in something that is almost eerily familiar today, El Fronterizo was aimed at promoting the Republican Party among Tucson's Hispanic population. Lyon calls El Fronterizo the most successful of the Spanish-language papers before it shut down in 1914. Its editor was Carlos Velasco, who would help found the Alianza Hispano-Americana, a mutual aid society. He also apparently took this very weird position of wanting to repatriate people back to Mexico in some sort of anti-assimilation stance. Both El Fronterizo and Los Dos Repúblicas would do a lot to promote pride in the Hispanic community, but also in Hispanic culture in general. The one downside is that they also both advocated deporting all the Chinese workers who had come with the railroad, which once again proves that the Chinese were one of the most despised ethnic groups in the Old West. All in all, according to Lyon, at least a dozen different Spanish newspapers came and went in Tucson during this era. There were also a few other attempts at establishing a bilingual paper elsewhere in the territory. The Pinal Drill tried, but was dead by 1884, after which the press and its type were moved to Phoenix, where they were used to print another short-lived Spanish newspaper called El Mercurio. As we talked about in episode 129, there was a Spanish paper called El Progreso, but I'm not entirely sure how long it lasted or what exactly happened to it. Down at the international border by Nogales, we have the bilingual Daily Monitor, as well as another Spanish paper called El Heraldo. Alright, that is the dry history lesson for today. I know I just threw a bunch of names, dates, and other uninteresting things at you, but that was all prep work for our next episode. So join me next week when we will cover the actual process of getting a newspaper out, what constituted news back then, the men who drove themselves crazy trying to print the paper, and the very real battles they all got into with officials and each other. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.